This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Duong, who is the author of the new book, The Virtues of Violence, Democracy Against Disintegration in Modern France. This was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press, and it is a really fascinating exploration of an our understanding of the role of violence um, in our in the context of both revolutionary France as well as thinking about the role of violence in democracies um, and how violence creates and can contribute to the establishment of um, a democratic people. But I'm going to let Kevin do a much better job at describing that than me. Um, and I'd like to welcome Kevin Duong to the New Books and Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Lily. Great. Thank you for having me. It's really appreciated. Sure. Um, so I guess maybe I'd start by saying, I guess there are probably two main kind of sources for the book. Um, the first is it grew out of my dissertation. And the first is intellectual. So as a younger graduate student, I was particularly interested in how philosophical vitalism, so theories of life um, and vitalist aesthetics were being deployed by leftist critics in the 20th century. And at that time in graduate school, in political theory, at least, there was a lot of interest in the concept of life for radical politics. Um, so you see this from both Marxist and non-Marxist perspectives. You saw it in debates over new and old materialism and biopolitics and debates over the death drive and queer theory, stuff like that. And so I was really interested as a graduate student in how vitalism actually had a tendency to draw thinkers on the left towards the right. Because I was and still am actually generally suspicious of the use of the concept of life for leftist politics in general. Um, and actually, that interest led to the final chapter of the book, which I wrote first in order. So the book was written out of order, I guess. Um, Not unlike other books. <laughs> right. It's, it's like probably most people's books. It's all <laughs> written all over the place. Um, but it seemed like the, the natural place to look at the intersection between vitalism, aesthetics, and radical politics was, was of course, violence, especially in the context of kind of fascist theories of violence. So regenerative violence, highly aestheticized violence, violence which was seen to promote life over death, health over sickness, strength over weakness, stuff like that. And so originally I was, I thought I was going to write a dissertation on these kinds of quasi-fascist theories of violence. Um, but the problem that I quickly encountered when I started studying these theories of violence was that I had assumed that these this kind of this language of violence that's really aestheticized and really vitalistic was unique to the first half of the 20th century. So I was really influenced, for example, by this book by um, the historian Zeev Sternhell, Neither Right Nor Left, um, which for all of its flaws, um, I, it just blew me away in the way it canvassed the radical intellectual landscape of the first half of the 20th century and the place of violence in it. Um, and so as I was studying more French history and trying to figure out um, what was unique about this violence, I ran into this obvious problem was that the more that I studied French history, the more that I tried to pin down what was so unique about this violence, I just became more persuaded that it wasn't unique. I kept seeing it everywhere. I mean, I was seeing aspects of it in liberals and Catholics and socialists and Jacobins and anarchists, you name it. 
Um, I, and I guess this happens with everyone. When they study something, you start seeing it everywhere. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, I guess it happened to me. Um, but at a certain point, it occurred to me that maybe I was wrong in assuming that the thing to be explained was which was the uniqueness of a kind of highly aestheticized life promoting violence under fascism. And maybe the actual thing to study was, in fact, why did it seem to be everywhere, especially in the 19th century? Um, because it turns out that in many of the texts I, I started studying, violence did look life promoting. It did look socially cementing. It did look reparative and self transformative. And so I guess, you know, this often happens. You, you start studying one decade and then you end up writing a book about the decade before. Um, <laughs> in my case, I thought I was going to write a dissertation on early 20th century political theory and I ended up writing a book that goes all the way back to the French Revolution. So, you know, <laughs> um, like that happens. So <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Um, so that, so that was kind of one, one origin of the book was this weird experience of trying to pin down this violence and then somehow stumbling into the 19th century more generally. But the other really important kind of influence for the book, which I only now fully appreciate retroactively, um, which is that I, while I was doing a lot of this research as a graduate student, I was getting involved with the Graduate Workers Union at Cornell. So beginning in my second year there, grad workers at Cornell started unionizing. Um, and I would say this was probably the single most important and transformative experience of my adult life, actually. Um, it really taught me what democratic politics was. Um, in particular, because it, it turns out that when you start learning to unionize and to organize, in this case, fellow graduate workers, um, it, it really hits home that the soul of democracy is solidarity, like really tight social bonds. Um, because the point is to produce bonds so thick that you're afraid to break them because if you break those bonds, the cause is lost. Um, and it, and, and the experience of unionizing really began teaching me how much my patterns of thinking had actually been structured by the legacies of cold war liberalism, which had always taught me to be really suspicious of thick social bonds. So, you know, when I hear thick social bonds, I instinct, I instinctively think nationalism, exclusion, top-down social engineering, stuff like that. And I'd always assumed that the task of the left was to dismantle those kinds of really thick exclusionary social bonds. And that's still true, I think. But I think I came to realize that all of my anxiety over any talk about thick, demanding social reciprocity that I would have, you know, kind of lazily attacked for being crypto-authoritarian or disciplinarian, maybe that was actually evidence of how much the Cold War, Cold War had really left its fingerprints on my mind so that I had a really hard time thinking about solidarity in productive ways. Um, anyway, so by the time I started writing a dissertation, I started connecting these two things up. Maybe, in fact, the reason that redemptive violence is everywhere and not just this unique thing to early 20th century is because it turns out that the pursuit of thick social bonds is just really central to the struggle for democracy. And maybe the reason that I had always assumed that it was unique to like fascist political thinkers was because the Cold War had pathologized it for so long as this really niche, extreme, exceptional type of violence, which you just shouldn't be finding under normal democratic conditions, but which turns out you do. Um, so I think those kinds of, yeah, yeah. 
Go ahead. It was kind of intersected accidentally in grad school. And, it, and then it turned out that I wrote a book about it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and that, that actually is an interesting way of sort of pulling in this question because your, your book focuses on the role of violence in, in what you call the long 19th century of, of France. Um, starting with the French Revolution and ultimately ending at the time of World War I um, with a number of, of really rich examples that you highlight throughout the book. Um, but you talk about it in, in the framing of the theory as redemptive violence um, yeah. and that this kind of redemptive violence is actually necessary for self-rule the the rule that's coming out of the French Revolution, um, which many people sort of it, it categorize as this kind of extreme use of kind of arbitrary, random, gruesome violence, right. the guillotine, of course, um, and and other forms of you know mob rule, um, and particularly the the vision in the United States where you know many of our founders were very opposed to what was right. going on in France. Um, right. And we learn about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and so I would love for you to explain the role of this idea of redemptive violence um, and how we can think about it in contrast to some degree to those fears that we often yeah. learn about. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think what I'd say is, I so the, the American example is right. I think the way that we remember this type of violence is as arbitrary, extreme, anarchic, even, um, and that's the odd thing. So, so I should just say, on one hand, I think that's not entirely wrong. Um, <laughs> we're in fact, you know, extreme, arbitrary elements to the terror. Um, and, and I'm not interested in denying that, but you do pretty quickly realize how much that normalized interpretation of revolutionary violence was almost, it, it was primarily promoted obviously by those who are skeptical of revolution. And it also doesn't describe how those who are committing violence actually talked about it. Um, which makes sense. I mean, these are people who are using choosing to use violence to create a new people where there wasn't one before or where what was there before was a highly stratified hierarchical society that needed some kind of fundamental transformation from the inside. And, you know, they, they, for a variety of reasons that differ on the context, um, they decide that some sort of collective violence is necessary, at least a representation of collective violence is necessary, something like that. And so it seems obvious that they're going to connect violence to this project of reconstruction, moral regeneration, spiritual rebirth and renewal. Um, it, it does point to what other scholars have have also pointed out, which is that there is a lingling, you could say, Catholic vision behind a lot of the French thinkers specifically about the way that they talk about violence. So I chose the, the term redemptive violence deliberately, partly for this reason. Um, A, they sometimes use the word redemptive. They often use the language of regeneration, expiation, stuff like that, which many of which have a kind of vaguely... Christian overtone. And I think that 
isn't accidental. The, the vision of revolutionary violent renewal that you often find in these cases is connected to a kind of millenarian rebirth of the world. Um, revolution by the people specifically here is seen as the people executing their own kind of millenarian revolution. Um, and so in that sense, it's why the, the traditional way that we're taught to think about this violence, it may be right in some aspects, but it somehow misses the whole modernity behind what is happening. And I, that's one of the things I was hoping to really stress in the book is that you really can't understand this type of violence unless you understand it as expressing something really fundamental about the modern project of humans creating for themselves the conditions of their own collective life on their own terms, through their own actions, which in many cases involved violence. And and part of what you talk about early in the book also is the the contrast between the construction and the implementation of this redemptive violence um, in the terminology that you use in contrast to the violence that's explained in sort of social contract theory and Hobbes and Locke in particular. Um, and that this is also sort of the perspective that the Americans had or the Anglo-Americans sort of had um, with regard to the entrance into the contract, whereas the French experience with regard to the revolution um, was, as you sort of trace out, the way uh, of using violence, not as, as something that you're escaping from, but that's necessary to create the republic. Right. Can you talk about that, particularly in context of like, our history of political theory? Sure. Um, actually, the, I think you're totally right to point to the specifically American um, emphasis on social contract theory, because I think the the difference here is that French revolutionaries in particular, they're not doing the same exercise as social contract theory, which is creating a society ex nihilo. So, you know, in Locke's case of a, fictionally empty American continent or something like that. They have, you know, you know, in this case for them, like France already exists. <laughs> if you're going to, you know, so if you're going to create a democracy, something has to be destroyed in order to be rebuilt. But the fantasy of social contract theory doesn't have that destruction of an old regime story built in. And so the way that we're taught to think about violence and social contract theory is natural violence is in the state of nature. We sublimate it to enter into society. And as you know, as you point out, one of the things I try to stress in the book, well, most places don't emerge into modern democracies like that. They have to destroy what came before. And it turns out that the task of having to destroy what came before in order to create the new just forces you to plot the constitutive role of violence and peoplehood in a very different way. It can't just be exclusively classified as a source of anarchy or disorder. Um, there's, of course, the same debate in the 19th century about whether the law, positive law on its own, is really sufficient to transform the world. But most thinkers seem to agree that some type of violent dismemberment um, is required for this kind of people formation. And and so in terms of this, as you say, this people formation, the 
the examples that you provide in the book, you have four really beautifully rendered discussions um, in the book that sort of trace the the role of violence um, in different formats that sort of dominated the French history for more than a century, but as you say, the long 19th century. Um, Can you talk a little bit about each of those? We can go through them one at a time, but also why these particular instances of violence were uh, or are are constitutive of the redemptive violence that you're sort of tracing out and explaining. Sure, happy to. Um, so yeah, the the four cases are the French Revolution, but really specifically the trial of Louis the Sixteenth, um, the conquest of Algiers after eighteen thirty, especially in the writings of Tocqueville, um, the Paris Commune, and the years leading up to the mobilization for World War One. Um, and as you say, like each in each of those cases, violence figures slightly differently, although always in this kind of regenerative capacity that's meant to reconstruct the people. Um, I, I partly picked those four cases actually for ideological diversity. So I wanted the polemical force of seeing the hero of 19th century liberalism, Tocqueville, paired with someone who's often been caricatured as the father of fascism, so George Sorel. And I wanted that polemical pairing to force us to notice that our habits about narrating violence in the history of political thought fall along really unhelpful lines, which is that violence is the exclusive property of X camp. And how important would it be to notice that I could probably pull lines from Tocqueville and insert them into a Sorelian text and you'd never notice. And so, you know, so it turns out that the liberal can sound a lot like the syndicalist anarchist. And it turns out that the Jacobin status can sound a lot like the horizontalists of the commune. You know, I, I want these counterintuitive pairings to really emphasize that you're never, you're not going to find an adequate explanation of this type of violence. If you search for it as if it were the monopolized possession of one particular ideological camp. What this reveals, I think, is that's really situated at a fundamental way of interpreting the modern democratic experience, which is that of social disintegration. So that was one reason why I I kind of picked those four cases that way. Um, The other is, is that the cases blend, although I guess in different degrees, this emphasis that social disintegration is always also experienced as a form of psychic disintegration. So this is really a particular theme in chapters two and four, um, where it turns out that many of these people theorizing violence, they're theorizing it as regenerative for the social body, but they're also theorizing it as reparative for the psyche, which which in various different ways, they imagine modern democratic modernity as having fractured. This is especially true of Tocqueville. This is true of um, the Bergsonian left before World War I. This idea that something about the modern democratic experience fractures us at every level of our life from psychic to social. And that vi- and the interesting thing they found about violence was that violence works on both your psyche and the world. Um, you know, so I, I sort of picked those four cases 
that way, in addition to the usual considerations of how do I cover a lot of years in as few chapters as I can. Um. And and so <clears throat> one of the points that you just made that also is part of the framing of the theory is this idea of social disintegration um, that you just highlighted also paired with psychic disintegration. Um, but that social disintegration is a key element in thinking about um, the concern with regard to violence. Um, can you sort of pull that into this sort of broader theoretical framework? Yeah. Um, so that, so I, I should say that was a surprise to me, even when I was doing the research, I did not expect to be writing a book about social disintegration. Um, actually in Marad Idris's book, he talks about the insinuance of violence where violence always seems to have to be paired with something else. So in his case, it's like violence with peace, violence with friendship, et cetera. I think in, that was absolutely my experience. I kept trying to study violence. And the more I tried to study violence, the more my attention kept getting deflected to concepts nearby. And in this case, it was social disintegration. It turned out that all these people who were talking about violence, it seemed to me, we're talking about violence because what they actually cared about was the very fundamental question, one of the fundamental questions of modern political theory, especially social contract theory, which simply is what is a modern society? What holds it together? What makes a modern society an actual cohesive unit capable of governing itself rather than a society that is held together because of divine sanction and because of the legacies of tradition? Um, in other words, what are the specifically modern sources of social cohesion that make a society a society? And the thing that I'll really, this is what made the research so interesting to me when I finally started getting into it, which was that it turns out that studying all these theorists of violence meant also actually studying their theories of what made a society a society. The way that they all answered is very different. So what Robespierre thinks makes a society a society is very different than what um, a Tocqueville or a Sorel or a Proudhon or something like, or someone like that answers. Um, but social disintegration emerged in the process of the research as one of the central categories because it, it became the insinuate. It became this kind of, uh, this problem that exercised such an enormous gravitational pull on all the thinkers of the era so that whenever they talked about violence, it was always wrapped up in this discussion of what are we repairing? What are we piecing back together? Um, modernity is this condition that we're now stuck with. Um, and we're not confident that peaceful solutions are going to be adequate to getting us through it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it wasn't a concept that I had originally thought would feature prominently in the research, but it became a kind of inevitable sticking point. And in, in retrospect, at least now that I finished the book, it totally makes sense. If if there's any trope I think that you could pick out from 19th century thought, whether it's in political theory or literature or something like that, it's this, it's this anxiety that there's something specific about the modern condition where social bonds are fraying. Um, 
I mean, you know, pick up any Victor Hugo novel and this is half the plot. Um, and so in retrospect, it becomes obvious to me that it's hard to tell the story about the emergence of modern democracies without also pairing it with the story about how people were just so deeply worried about fraying social bonds and what to do about that. And and you talk about this in, in also the chapter on Algiers and the concern, and again, this goes to Tocqueville's sort of general thesis with regard to sort of separating the individual from the whole. Right. Um, and, I, and I'm wondering how um, the the sort of role of violence and our, our understanding and thinking about it in a civic format, um, how that contributes to sort of gluing the individual back into right. um, the, the, the whole or the community or the society. Right. That, that chapter in particular actually really drove home something to me that I always sort of knew, but never quite appreciated fully. I think for all of us who study political theory, which is that we, we know that Athens is considered like the original example of democracy. And we know that Athens was a slave society. And so that we often tell these stories about Athenian democracy being dependent upon slave labor. We sometimes emphasize, but maybe not as much as we could, that Athens was also constantly at war. <laughs> um, and, and that it's hard, maybe even impossible to separate out Athenian democracy from the fact that Athens was also a democracy at war. And the Tocqueville chapter really drove this home to me, which is that, I mean, there's, there's several ironies kind of here. It's on one hand, of all the thinkers that I treat, Tocqueville might be the most circumspect about mass collective violence. And yet far more people died in the conquering of Algiers, like orders of magnitude more than the terror. And yet we hold up the terror as the extraordinary apex of revolutionary violence. So there's an irony there that there's no real direct relationship between how circumspect one is about violence and how much violence actually pans out from a political project. Um, but Tocqueville in particular seemed really acutely aware that war could be projecting power abroad, projecting the might of the people abroad, um, was one way of experiencing social cohesion. It's an important story because a lot of times when French political theorists at least talk about um, social solidarity, they think of it in universalistic terms. So social solidarity is achieved when we have universal principles of non-discrimination. Um, this is the kind of oft-criticized model of Republican universalism in France, which Marx also critiqued in on the Jewish question, which is that you'll achieve the unity of the people by abstracting away all their particularities. And this is also kind of the Rousseauian general will. What Tocqueville really appreciates is that, no, no, you can actually achieve social solidarity best, a version of abstract common bonds, precisely through a Manichaean struggle. In this case, a Manichaean struggle against an intractable North African enemy population. Um, and so in, in Tocqueville's case, it seems clear to him, it, okay, you need, he's, he's very clear that democracy needs some new type of associative bond, some new type of glue for re-embedding people back into a body capable of experiencing common goods, common um, goals. But he, 
he's much more forthright than I think subsequent thinkers that, okay, but to achieve this, you, what you don't want is an abstract universalism. What you need is a clear sense of stakes of what we stand for and who we must defeat for our values to win. And so, of course, the conquest of Algiers is a perfect occasion for this. And as, as I track in the chapter, the Tocqueville who begins toying with the idea of multiracial integration within French rule very quickly yields to a vision of Tocqueville who simply defines um, native populations as intractably incapable of integration. And this provides the kind of Manichaean worldview necessary for Tocqueville to see colonization and conquest as a source of democratic social cohesion at home. So in that context, uh, I also wanted to ask you about the example with regard to, or the chapter um, on the Paris Commune. Um, and, and again, you sort of move from sort of left to right and right to left in terms of the arguments with regard to the capacity to use violence um, yeah. to, to build people. Um, which again, is this kind of, as, as you noted at the beginning, it's a complicated idea um, and goes back to the sort of questions of, of vitalism. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how the example of the Paris Commune um, is another thread in, in your fabric here, um, discussing essentially redemptive violence? Sure. Yeah, the, the Paris Commune is a really, it's a complicated example for a couple of reasons. One is it, its stature looms so large in the history of the left but the problem that I think anyone who studies it has to confront, and as I talk about in the chapter, is the dual fact that we often considered a democratic revolution, and they considered themselves waging a democratic revolution, but that they were obviously also a minoritarian revolution. And this, I think, gets way too easily papered over in otherwise sympathetic treatments of the Paris Commune for all the extraordinary things that they tried to accomplish. The fact was that they never really ever had mass majority support. And so what really interested me in the Paris Commune example is here's a democratic revolution, which unlike the ones before it, do not get to presuppose that they speak for the majority. What do they do about it? How can you still be a democratic revolution if you're effectively a minoritarian revolution? And here, violence becomes a crucial way of answering the question. Because what becomes clear when you read some of the, the, the journals of the Paris Commune is that, okay, so maybe the French state has the majority support if you count ballots. But if you think of the people not as simply people who cast ballots, but those who are prepared to take over the streets then the Paris Commune has a chance of saying we represent the voice of the people if by the people we don't mean the majority electorate, but by those who are ready to take over the streets in the name of the people. And so violence here becomes a way not only of constituting the people as a cohesive body, which in many famous accounts that I talk about briefly, the barricades are this classic place where the people come together and through their social cooperation at the barricade, passing one stone you know, from one person to another, a kind of mutual social solidarity emerges. The people are finally here. That's true. But violence in the case of the Paris Commune also lets them redefine what the relevant body of the people actually is. So 
The state may get to rely on the electorate as the body of the people, but a revolutionary movement like the commune arts thought they were waging can rely on a different version of the body of the people, which are those who pick up paving stones and march in the streets. And if you take that, if you take the people as fundamentally defined by their capacity to engage in violence, the name of freedom, then the commune can plausibly be said to speak on behalf of the people. But that's what that's what makes it a complicated case. The democratic credentials of that movement for all of the equality that they espoused, which and they did sincerely, and that's to their glory. At the end of the day, they had to demand equality in the face of the fact that they simply could that their demands for equality, in fact, did not generate widespread spontaneous support. And violence was this extraordinary way of translating the terms of the people into favorable terms for the communards. If, 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 if people are fundamentally defined by their capacity for violence in the street, then it's not the French state that has the democratic credentials. It's the insurrectionists. It's the insurgents on the barricade. And so in that case, redemptive violence serves both this cohesive function for the people, but it also serves a simultaneous fundamental act of redefining what is the relevant body of the people. Is it the body of the people who hold the ballots or is it the body of the people who hold rifles? Um, I felt weird writing that chapter, actually, because I myself count, I count myself as one of those people who, in fact, has this deeply romantic view of the commune. There are probably fewer things I read about which can like instantly move me to tears than reading about the glory of the communards and the barricades and Louise Michel dying for bread for all and you know sh- shouting at the barricades. But I come to it as someone who also thinks that the left cannot dodge so easily the problem that the communards just never had majority support. I think that's something that those who are sympathetic to revolutions like that also have to be ready to account for the fact that not all revolutionary movements in the name of the people will actually draw majority support from the people. Um, So yeah, this was another way in which redemptive violence weaves into this longer story in the 19th century about how to create a cohesive people under conditions which are constantly disintegrating the people into self-interested individuals, individuals who are simply trying to survive, individuals who don't see themselves as having common interests with their neighbors. Um, But the commune provides the real great example of having to do this when most people, by all evidence, just don't seem to want to do the revolution. And so the revolution is is able to use violence, but it doesn't necessarily construct or or is able to establish the people or the republic in the quite the same way is that correct yeah i mean i think i don't know if the people are ever successfully established um and clearly though the communards are banking on that fact strategically sincerely in both cases um i don't know if in any of the cases the people are are definitively established but it's precisely because the people are never definitively established that they get to make the claim, well, don't accept at face value what the state has told you the boundaries of the people are, which is the electorate. Don't take for granted or don't automatically assume that the state's definition of the people is the relevant one, because if that's the case, then we really are 
a minoritarian revolution that doesn't speak on behalf of the people. It's it's the openness of the definition of the people that lets the commune arts pull off the complex theoretical maneuvers that they're trying to do. And the the final example case study, as we say in social sciences, <laughs> um, that you have in the book is about the sort of lead up to World War One. Um, and, and so again, we have this international situation. Um, so it is relevant to France, but it's also relevant to many other countries that were involved ultimately in the war, the war to end all wars. Um, (laughs) and, and so how does, again, how does redemptive violence figure into, this particularly French experience with regard to not just World War One, but the anticipation of it. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who remembers the days after 9-11 yes. will recall the unreal sight of seemingly near national unanimity about war. And I was I was young then, and I still remember being like, what is happening right now? Like, has everyone lost their minds? And something kind of like that happens, actually, you know, in the, the months leading up to World War I. It's, and it's, this is, again, it's what makes this case so hard. One of those rare, maybe not so rare moments in which war manages to unite the right and the left. Um, in this particular case, you see the ultra sector, c- certain sectors of the ultra left um, rally temporarily with the nationalist far right. Um, and the language of entering war is absolutely millenarian. So they, they're not yet calling it the war to end all wars, but it is absolutely spoken of in these euphoric re- terms of, of in- collective renewal, national renewal revenge for the Franco-Prussian War, but not only that, a kind of vindication of the virile French spirit of its martial legacy and history. And the thing that still blows my mind is how many supposedly progressive thinkers line right up to support this. The, you know, I don't think historians will ever fully explain how it is that France goes from having the ro- most robust anti-military movement in Europe before 1914 to having virtually all of its anti-militarists immediately line up for World War One. I. I mean, it's just an unbelievable sight. And so there, there's the, the question which I pose is, well, what, how in the world are they imagining this violence such that people who nominally seem to share very little can at least agree that in this case, entering the war is going to basically provide the salvation of France and not only of France, of the, they, they explicitly say of the modern world. This is this is a kind of proving grounds if the modern project will be worth saving or not for many of these thinkers. Um, and like all the chapters that I try to do in different degrees, the way that people think about violence is deeply tied with actually existing contemporary scientific debate. Um, so in the first chapter, I focus on scientific debates over electricity and lightning and natural disasters. Um, 
positivism plays a really crucial role in chapter three and the chapter on Tocqueville chapter two, it's the, um, the psychological sciences, especially Victor Cousin that are really relevant. And in this last chapter, it's the sciences of life. It's we're, we're talking about a time precisely when philosophies of life and sciences of life are imagining life as something that is only living precisely when it overcomes inertia, stasis, and death. This, this is what we now call vitalism. This idea that life itself is a kind of metaphysical principle which reaches fullness precisely when it triumphs in, over, in particular, inertia. It becomes very easy to see then that if you hate the Third Republic, if you hate parliamentary democracy because you see it as a dead end, it's really easy to see war not as about death, but it's about overcoming inertia and overcoming stasis and overcoming deadlock, and therefore war taking on life-affirming, life-productive powers. One of the thinkers that I focus on, Henri Bergson, I mean, many others have commented on this too, the outrageous scene of Bergson, of all people, giving speeches in 1914, talking about Germany as a force of determined materialism, inertia, mechanical determinism, and France as this kind of sui generis force of life, which if it wins over Germany will contribute to modernity's life-fulfilling capacities in general. This to me just... This case in particular is a really good example of why you cannot tell the story of redemptive violence under strict ideologically partisan terms. But on the other hand, why, if you can somehow crack the nut of why redemptive violence is so popular to so many people across the spectrum at so many different times that you'll have unlocked something really fundamental about the modern democratic experience generally. It's precisely because this case is so bizarre in many ways that if you can get a handle on it, it sometimes feels like you can just get a handle on what in the world 19th century democracy was all about anyway. Um, and so, yeah, that was the kind of ambition of this final chapter. It's it's among the, the most unpredictable cases, I think, in which redemptive violence is invoked and yet the payoff, I think, would be really big. I don't know if I successfully do it. Many people have tried to figure out what is going on in these years. Um, but the ideological confusion and the almost near euphoria over a romantic vision of war as life-affirming is just so prolific um, that it's hard to avoid the conclusion that it really that it would only be so prolific if it really spoke to something fundamental about the modern democratic experience more broadly. And that's that's kind of the question that I wanted to ask you next is how do we how can we think about sort of our understanding of democracy and also is sort of broadly construed republics, French, American, et cetera, um, and the role that essentially redemptive violence has in creating and sustaining them? Yeah. I think, I think one important thing, I don't quite say in the book, although I believe strongly, which is, and it, it's something I reluctantly came to concede as I was writing the book, is that I'm not sure there's actually anything clear or definitive you can say theoretically about violence. I don't think there are philosophical solutions 
to political violence. They're only political solutions to political violence. That's what makes it political. Um, and so I don't, what, so my approach has been, okay, well, we're not going to find a philosophical solution to violence. I'm not entirely sure that you can just philosophically write away redemptive violence as a kind of incoherent concept either. If it turns out, which is what I think I was after in this book, that redemptive violence is appealing, not necessarily because it's philosophical content, but because it responds to a problem so fundamental to modern societies, which is the experience of social disintegration. So if that's the case, if you wanted to do something about redemptive violence, you would not be making a philosophical argument about redemptive violence. You'd have to solve the problem it's trying to solve, which is the modern democratic experience of social solidarity. It's kind of why towards the end of the book, I begin stressing this a lot more. One, One surefire way, in my opinion, of not dealing with the problem of redemptive violence is to wash our hands and say, well, you know what? The ideal of democratic social bonds was always a utopian hope in the first place. And it's the mere wanting of thick democratic social bonds, which leads us to redemptive violence. Ergo, throw your hands up, out goes the window, democratic social bonds, because we know where that leads and it leads to the gulag. And it seems to me like if you wanted to engage with the problem of redemptive violence, a better way would be to say, okay, well, then the project of democratic politics is to have to begin imagining superior answers to what makes a democratic social bond free and equal and livable so that redemptive violence is not such a persuasive answer. It's because it's not clear to me that you can just offer a philosophical knockdown response to the violence per se. But what you can do is to organize democratic politics in a way that answers some of the same concerns that violence was also trying to answer. And that seems to me like a much more promising way of dealing with it as a philosophical problem than what I'm inclined to think of as, as, the, as a more libertarian answer, which is to simply conclude that the ideal of democratic social bonds was, was a misguided ideal in the first place. That to me is actually, my worry is that the legacies of the Cold War have left us leaning towards that libertarian answer, which is that if redemptive violence is generated by a desire for democratic social bonds, the problems with democratic social bonds we should settle for a democratic modus vivendi. In many ways, that's what Rawls's answer is. And I don't think that's an answer I can accept anymore. I think that dodges the problem rather than trying to confront it. Well, it, it does in terms of leaving, you know, you sort of you walk away from it, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, as opposed to solving it. It it declares what historically most people have considered to be a core problem for democracy as a non-problem, just kind of like by fiat. Um, you know, and, and that to me is 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 just not a sound response. Um, I think that was one of the really intriguing things about writing the book, which was how much it underscored for me how much energy we sometimes put into just disavowing the problem that redemptive violence is trying to solve. Much better now, I think, to just face it head on rather than to to engage in the kind of disavowals that, that historically our profession has sometimes done. And and I and I think that, 
you're in the book, you lay out the issue that this is not something, redemptive violence is not necessarily something that's also going to go away, um, right. as you say, because it's trying to solve a problem that it doesn't necessarily know it's trying to solve all the time. Um, yeah. And I think that's some of how your examples sort of trace through the the questions of like, why does violence come into play here or there? Um, as I was sort of reading through the book, I was, I was thinking about that, you know, why does violence happen in one place and perhaps not in another also? Uh-huh. Um, although it's not always the case because we do see forms of violence in a variety of different settings beyond the examples you have given us with regard to the long 19th century in France. Right. Um, so Kevin, what is it that you're working on now? It, it actually comes out of a tiny sliver out of the third chapter. Um, the chapter on the Paris Commune contrasts the, imagining the people as an electorate versus imagining the people as an armed force. And one of the things that has become much more clear to me in the last couple of years, um, and this is in particular in response to mass disenfranchisement in America, um, and especially the last couple of months, where uh, listening to the way that people talk about the ballot. At first, when I wrote the book, I was always habitually trained as a theorist to contrast the ballot with the bullet. But as I wrote the book, and now what I want to work on is, actually, you know what? Most 19th century revolutionaries knew that the ballot was just as dangerous of a weapon as the bullet. There were different moments which called for different weapons. But to read 19th century people, revolutionaries who fought for the ballot, they think they absolutely think they're committing insurrection. They absolutely think they're waging revolution as they both fight for the ballot and as how they imagine how they try to use it. So the project that I'm working on now is actually, it's two parts. It's in a reconstruction of thinkers who imagined the suffrage as a revolutionary weapon, as a revolution, like if you could only give everyone the ballot, the entire fabric of society would be transformed. But part of what I also want to tell then is, okay, but then why did we stop thinking about the ballot that way? And it turns out that the story is really interesting, I think, because my hunch is that it's precisely when universal suffrage begins getting universalized in the 20th century, especially with its extension to women and to, in America, African-Americans, and in France, to former colonial subjects. So right after World War II, the suffrage is massively expanded around the French Empire. It's precisely at this moment that you start to getting, from many different directions, theorists theorizing the ballot as not the possession of collective groups, but as the possession of individuals expressing their private preference. And so the second project, I think, is it's trying to build out of that hunch in that third chapter is, well... Why was the ballot imagined once upon a time as a revolutionary weapon? And why isn't it actually thought of it that way anymore? And it speaks to the present in a way that I really want, because sometimes I think that the reason 
voter disenfranchisement efforts are so systematic is because, in fact, everyone secretly already knows how revolutionary it would be if everyone voted. Everyone actually kind of knows that the ballot is a revolutionary weapon, even if we kind of like poo-poo it for being a kind of diluted form of democratic action compared to protest or something like that. And yet, its incipient power is there. No wonder that the powers that be are deeply afraid of its mass exercise. Um, So that's what I'd like to work on next, is kind of reconstructing the utopian hopes behind the ballot and why that that those hopes went away. And and would this um, study uh, be both in France and in the United States or in other countries beyond France? That's, I'm actually hoping for it to be primarily America and France. Yeah. Um, I think the contrasts would help. Um, I did not actually come to graduate school expecting or planning to be exclusively a scholar of France. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm not wedded to that. Um, I mean, it's, it's the material I know best. And so I'll, I'm, I, I plan to draw on it substantially. But I think the American example, the American political tradition offers extraordinary examples of the ways in which people infuse the ballots with revolutionary hopes and dreams that are, that are now kind of quiet or disavowed. And I'd like to recover that too. Will you come on the New Books Network and talk to me about it when you finish that book? Of course, I'd love to. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today, Kevin Duong, to talk about your new book, The Virtues of Violence, Democracy Against Disintegration in Modern France. This is Oxford University Press 2020. I assume one can purchase it at Oxford University Press's website. Um, Any brick and mortar store, you know that one might want to um, virtually access? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I... There is a local bookstore, if you happen to live in upstate New York, Rough Draft, in Kingston, New York, that has copies and can sell them. Great. Um, (laughs) Thank you for the shout out to Rough Draft. And thank you for joining me today, Kevin. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure.